El Fanboy, episode 22. Hi everybody, Mario Francisco Robles, MFR here with you, and this is the 22nd edition of the El Fanboy Podcast. Uh, this is probably going to be one of them lean and mean versions, uh, iterations of the show, which tends to be the case whenever I do the Fanboy Friday edition. The following Tuesday is kind of, uh, you know, just a little shorter because not a whole hell of a lot happens for me. On the weekends, on the weekends when most people are out seeing movies and partying and then living lives, that's when your boy here goes to work. So, you know, I spent the whole weekend watching, uh, watching people dance as I play music at weddings and bar mitzvahs this past weekend. So, um, you know, there's not a whole lot that's happened in my fanboy realm that's different since last Friday. The, the last movie I saw was still Spider-Man Homecoming, which I caught on Thursday. The shows I'm watching are still Narcos and The Exorcist. Um, and yeah, there's really not a whole hell of a lot to report there. So today we're going to sort of hit the ground running. We're going to hit on a, just a few key topics. We're going to focus a lot on Wonder Woman 2. We're going to focus on uh, the latest coming out of Justice League. Uh, I'm going to have the marvelous one himself, Dave Gonzalez from the Storm of Spoilers podcast and Fighting in the War Room, who also works for MTV and Teen Mom 2 and all that. So he is fucking always a blast to speak to, and I've got him coming up later. Uh, he's going to be part of the closing segment of this show. So here's your warning, everyone. Uh, towards the end of this show, we're going to have a spoiler-driven discussion on all things Spider-Man Homecoming. So enjoy the show as far as you'd like, and then I'll give you a warning when we're about to get into the spoilers for those of you who have not seen Spider-Man Homecoming yet and don't want to have anything spoiled for you. But for now, I feel like a lot of you have already seen it. The box office numbers are in. So let's go ahead and get into the week's news, starting with the box office. So this weekend saw the premiere, the release, at last, of Spider-Man Homecoming, a film that we had been discussing here on the podcast for a while now, trying to figure out where it was going to land in the uh, opening weekend box office. And now that the weekend actuals are in, we can comfortably state that Spider-Man Homecoming opened to $117 million. Huge opening. It's the second biggest opening for a Spider-Man film ever. It's still, it trails behind Spider-Man 3. Uh, you know, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 3, which opened around 151. Uh, and by the way, if we were to do the the weekend, the um adjusted for inflation on that, it would be far, far more. So Spider-Man Homecoming is considerably short of Spider-Man 3, but it is, you know, it totally beats the hell out of the amazing Spider-Man's one and two. And really, you know, it, it's it's a very, very good opening. It's amazing what Marvel was able to do in resuscitating this brand. Because, uh, you know, this is the third version of Peter Parker Spider-Man that fans have been, you know, that, that, that has been in theaters in a very short window of time. 
So the fact that this movie did what it did shows that everything paid off as far as the marketing, as far as the way that Sony and Marvel Studios really, really embraced the MCU in the trailers and posters. Everyone derided them for, you know, every poster had to have the Avengers Tower or it had to have Tony Stark's giant head in it. And every commercial had to show, you know, Tony Stark having a scene with Peter Parker. You know, a lot of people wrote them for that, but listen, it paid off. And what's even more about this is that not only did it make bank, but the reviews are through the roof. We're going to get to that in a second. Um, well, let's continue here on the box office for a sec, shall we? So uh, number one, obviously Spider-Man Homecoming with 117 mil, followed by Despicable Me 3, which dropped 53% in its second weekend to bring in 33.5 million bucks. Then Baby Driver uh, dipped a, a, a short amount, 36.7%. It made $13 million in its second weekend. And then look at that. Fucking Wonder Woman keeps leapfrogging over the movies that came after her. She's such a badass. So Wonder Woman was in fourth last week and remains in fourth this week, uh, easing only 37.5% to a $9.8 million sixth weekend. Uh, that means she completes the leapfrog over Transformers The Last Night. She completes the leapfrog over Cars 3. And she also way completed the leapfrog over The Mummy, which those are like the three, the, the three big studio blockbusters that were released since she came out six weeks ago. And she has, you know, she's left them all in the dust. And, you know, that's not, that's not a typical pattern, guys. For anyone who's paying attention... Usually once another big studio film comes out, even if it's not a particularly good one, it tends to just push you out of the way because what happens is that Garner, you know, the, 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 that movie will then require more screens and it's going to push you off your screens and your box office. You're just going to start plummeting as soon as the other big movies start to come out. But what's happening with Wonder Woman is people are saying we want more of her and less of these things. So those things are the ones losing the screens. And Wonder Woman is still hanging in there. Like just for example, Transformers: The Last Night has only been out for three weeks, and they took it off of 891 screens from last week to this week. Wonder Woman has only been taken off of 313 screens. Um, you know, Cars Three lost 874 screens from last week to this one. So it's 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 everything that's come since her is losing screens at a more rapid pace because the demand for Wonder Woman is still there. You know, Warner Brothers is still tapping into that secret weapon, that hidden demographic that no one expected or no one really knew how to quantify, which is, you know, the older females and people who typically don't come to movies, people who are more apt and more prone to just you know, wait till something comes on TV. There's this genuine curiosity about Wonder Woman since it's the first ever. And because the reviews are so great, um, a lot of people who wouldn't typically get their ass out to a theater are getting their ass out to a theater. So hats off to Wonder Woman again. And just to round out the top five, uh, you know, Transformers is there. The last night made 6.3 million bucks. That is a 62% drop. Um, so now let's circle back to Wonder Woman, shall we, just to see how she's doing. So Wonder Woman currently stands at a worldwide haul 
of 745573296 bucks. And mind you, this is on a production budget of only $149 million. So this thing is making a crazy profit. It's it's really paying off beautifully for Warner Brothers. And it's the first DC movie that can really comfortably say that. Uh, and right now, it's second only to Batman v Superman in terms of worldwide haul. You know, it passed Suicide Squad. And yesterday, it passed another one from a rival studio. It passed Deadpool, which was the big one last year. And Ryan Reynolds did something pretty cool. He tweeted out an image of uh, of Deadpool kind of doing a little heart with his hands over the Wonder Woman symbol. And it says, the Merc may be filthier, but her B.O. is stronger. <laughs> By the way, what a dick, B.O., body odor. Anyway, uh, congrats, Wonder Woman, box office boss. And then Patty Jenkins quickly replied, uh, you are the absolute greatest, Ryan Reynolds. Thank you. We love you and your movie, too. So it's always nice to see the studios playing nice. And even when they're rivals, even when you know, they're, they're, they're unseating one another in the record books, um, you know, it's just nice to see them getting along the way they are. Just like last week when the sad news broke of uh, Stan Lee's wife's passing and DC released a very nice, classy statement on her passing because you know it's it's competition is stupid we're all in this together right marvel's creating great stuff dc's creating great stuff as long as we're all creating great stuff everyone's happy of course everyone likes to think that everything is some sort of fierce rivalry but that's not the case folks that's just here amongst us fucking small-minded fanboy types where it's you versus me and it's my fandom. It's cooler than your fandom and what I like is better than what you like. Anyway, okay, so Wonder Woman 2 is now on the horizon. Uh, I mean, we've always known it was going to happen, especially after that first weekend did what it did. But now we're finally getting our first real sort of details on it. Um, so there's talk about the setting that it's going to be set in the 1980s during and she's going to be dealing with the Soviet Union and the Cold War and all that sort of stuff um look I, I still wish it was the 70s and you know and and dealing with like the fallout of the Vietnam War and I feel like that era would be kind of fun to sort of explore for her because on top of that like feminism and all that sort of stuff really came to a head in the late 60s early 70s with like you know the the, the bra burning generation all that sort of stuff. I would have loved to have seen her part of that wave of history but listen the 80s are cool too and what I kind of like about it is it'll be interesting to see Diana get involved in a very different kind of war you know in the first film you know, she was part of World War One, which was all about brutality and bloodshed. You know, it was a very visceral, violent war. Um, the Cold War, on the other hand, was much more a, a war of espionage. You know, the the the, the you know the, the Russian, the Soviet Union, and the United States were not engaged in a physical war. So it was more about spying and, and other acts against one another. So that tells me that in, that in Wonder Woman 2, we're going to get to see more of that like Diana as a spy stuff that was so fun in Batman v Superman. That was one of my favorite aspects of that movie. Uh, you know, when I think about Batman v Superman, which to this day I've only ever seen once, um, what stands out to me is I really enjoyed the portrayal of Diana Prince as the sort of almost like cat burglar 
espionage spy woman in the shadows trying to, you know, work uh, under everyone's noses and her sort of interplay with, with Bruce Wayne. But, you know, so it, it looks like we're going to get to see more of that in the sequel. A very different kind of war, a more espionage-based war, which is what the Cold War was. Um, so bring that on, you know, and the eighties are just, are, are a very fun period. Obviously the music is very iconic. The fashion is hilarious. So that sounds good. there's also these rumors that, you know, the Warner brothers still has an option on Chris Pine's contract. So, you know, are we going to see Steve Trevor back? Listen, I don't think there's any way that's happening. I, I think what they're going to do if, you know, they might have like a flashback or two to, you know, to a moment that she shares with him, that she that she'll share with him, that helps motivate her in the current setting. I don't think we're going to see him brought back from the dead. I, I read somewhere that like, oh well, you know, we're dealing with like Greek mythology and all this sort of stuff, so they can, you know, there are all these godlike powers at play. Maybe they can bring Steve Trevor back. I hope to God they don't do that because that would suck so much of the power out of his sacrifice in in uh, the first Wonder Woman. So. I don't think they're dumb enough to do that. I think if anything, we'll just get a flashback or two uh, at a pivotal time in the story when she needs something to give her a little extra chutzpah, if you know what I mean. Um, but all right, so th- there was something that's that's come up since we're talking about the sequel, and you know, I kind of want to circle. Ab- I want to circle back to something that struck me about Wonder Woman. Um, and you know, and Aaron Verola tweeted me about this, and it got me thinking about it again. Since we're all looking forward to this sequel, um, you know, there it really seems to me that there, that there there was a retcon that that we we are amidst a retconning of the cinematic Wonder Woman. Okay, yes, I know that Patty Jenkins said that there were hardly any reshoots on the film, and that the only thing they added was the sequence right before No Man's Land. I know all that. But to this day, I truly think the ending got reworked. I think it was meant to end on more of a downer, something more uh, quote-unquote dramatic, like she goes into exile after World War I because the heartbreak of losing Steve and the heartbreak of experiencing firsthand how destructive and awful humanity can be to itself, you know, all that left her feeling like she didn't know if there was a place in this world for her which would bring us to Batman v Superman, where the final battle against Doomsday to save humanity makes her realize how badly she's needed, and so she comes out of hiding. You know, there was that whole line about, you know, basically just walking away from mankind for a hundred years, and if you do the chronology, you know, Batman v Superman came out in 2015, or 2016, so a hundred years ago would put her right around the end of World War I. So the original intention was to have it like she's been in hiding for a hundred years. Um, and you know, and all this would have made sense in that in the more sort of tragic, darker, more philosophical tones that we know Snyder, you know, Zack Snyder was pushing the DCEU into. But then what happened? Then Batman v Superman happened, and Warner Brothers and Jeff John said, we can't end on a downer again. You know, people are craving something uplifting. So rather than have Diana feeling defeated at the end of the movie, let's have Steve's sacrifice be what helps spurn her to be the hero that humanity needs because she sees its inherent beauty and the wonders it can achieve. You know, they, 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 they took, you know, and it's funny because like you don't really have to change a lot. 
You know, the, the entire film, the entire closing sequence could have been left almost as it was. It's all about the scene afterward where we see her and how she deals, you know, the, in, in the present day. That could be the scene that got reworked because, you know, you, you really could have left it all as is. You know, Steve's sacrifice occurs. She ends up beating Ares because, you know, whatever. Uh, so it didn't require a huge overhaul of an ending. It all had to do with just a few extra lines of dialogue and then that iconic shot of her you know, jumping out the window and saying that she's going to, you know, basically just, you know, be Wonder Woman, be the fucking hero. So it, it didn't require a huge rewrite. It just required tweaking a few lines of dialogue and ending on an uplifting note. And I do think that's what happened. And the unfortunate thing... Um, well, before I get into things that are unfortunate, you know, if that's the case, if they did rework the ending, they were so fucking right. You know, like I still get like goosebumps when I think of the final 10 minutes of Wonder Woman. Such a beautiful conclusion. So much better than having her go off and begin her hundred years of exile for mankind's affairs. Um, but like I said, you know, the unfortunate bit is it now sort of makes Batman v Superman not ring true. You know, her arc there when she talks about being, you know, walking away from mankind for a hundred years, that no longer makes a lot of sense. And it's going to put some weird pressure on these sequels to either validate that line or to just act like it never happened, which then makes basically, you know, retroactively turns it into a plot hole that she ever said that. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see how they deal with that. Um, but now, you know, while we're talking about the sequel, you know, the bigger question for me right now with Wonder Woman 2 is why they won't get the original screen screenwriter back. It's an issue I, I, I always have when studios find a great thing like they did with Wonder Woman, but then hire a different team to assemble the sequel. Now, here's what I mean. You know, let, let's recap, okay? Wonder Woman was based on a story by Zack Snyder, and the only credited writer is Alan Heinberg despite many involved with the production, including Warner Brothers, uh, repeatedly saying that Johns had a hand in the script. But as far as we know, Alan Heinberg wrote a script based on a story by Zack Snyder. And right now, all the reports are that Wonder Woman 2 is being written by Jeff Johns and Patty Jenkins. Now, Patty Jenkins, by all accounts, I mean, yes, she was the director, so obviously she had a hand in the look and feel of things and all that sort of stuff, but no one's ever said that she had any hand in writing Wonder Woman. And Jeff Johns has never officially been, you know, I mean, they, as of now, Jeff Johns isn't even credited as a writer on Wonder Woman. So the fact, the fact that the script is now with the two of them and there's no Alan Heinberg and there's no story by Snyder, it just gives me a little bit of like a reason to like, come on, you got a good thing. Why not keep that nucleus together? Why not try to get Snyder back, pick his brain for what he thinks the nuts and bolts of the story should be, then bring Heinberg back to work his magic and turn those nuts and bolts into something magical? Along, you know, with Jeff Johns basically nipping and tucking along the way and making sure that things ring true to the DC universe as a whole. Why not keep that nucleus going? But it looks like they're going to make a sequel that has just, you know, different creative minds behind it. And that sort of stuff always kind of worries me. 
It always kind of worries me. I don't know why they do it. Um, but, you know, it is what it is. So, so right now, that's sort of where I'm at right now with Wonder Woman 2. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how they continue to evolve on this idea of her walking away from mankind for 100 years while the first movie basically made it seem like she never walked away. And here we are now in the 80s, and she's going to be, again, involved with mankind's affairs. So it's going to be interesting to see how they go with all that. And I'm just sort of anxious about the fact that the creative team will not be the same. Um, While we're talking about things DC, there's been some new stuff about Justice League this week. Um... You know, uh, the actor, I don't know how to pronounce his name, fucking uh, Kiarin? Kiarin? I don't know. Kiarin Hines, uh, epic actor who's playing Steppenwolf, uh, said a few things during an interview about, you know, about Steppenwolf and about the process of making the film that's got some people talking. Before I get into what he had to say, let's talk about Steppenwolf for a second because we finally got a look at what the character is going to really look like. Remember, there was that that cutout uh, little bonus scene from Batman v Superman that we saw after the film got released, that was released online, where they, you know, uh, presumably showed us Steppenwolf, and it looks like they're not going to go with that design. You know, the, the action figure shows a much more humanoid-looking person. Looks almost like Mandarin, uh, you know, like the Mandarin from uh, Iron Man. Uh, not the movie, the actual comic book Mandarin. Uh, he has like a little Fu Manchu mustache, or like he almost looks like Ra's al Ghulish, I guess. Um, and you know, m- my initial response to seeing the action figure and what will presumably be the uh, how Steppenwolf looks in the film, I wasn't all that impressed. It just looked kind of like Ares again, another sort of gray, big, bulky villain. And I assume that's how Darkseid's going to eventually look when they get to that. Um, so I'm like, eh, yeah, I wasn't really. But then again. That that feeling of blah was tempered by the fact that I really actually enjoyed Ares. I'm one of the few people who didn't really balk at Act 3 of Wonder Woman. I, I, I enjoyed the design of Ares. And for me, it goes back to this idea that I spoke about a few episodes ago, where DC's characters are much more mythological and godlike in scope than Marvel's. You know, Marvel tries to do the working man heroes, the the average Joe who get tapped to do something cool type heroes. DC creates these archetypes that are the fucking, you know, they're gods. They're they're demigods. They, they they're you know they're much larger than life. And when you think about that, the villains for them should also be sort of godlike, godlike and classic and timeless. And when you think of it in those terms, when you look at Steppenwolf, he kind of fits with that mold. You know, he kind of, you know, um, he just feels like a much more mythological looking creature. Um, so I'm kind of fine with that. You know, the, the design seems a little uninspired, but I kind of dig it. Um, I'm just trying to think, like... I feel like some people wanted something that looked a little more comic booky with the red tones and whatever, but I'm kind of fine with the way they did it. I kind of like the way they sort of stripped it back and gave it a much more timeless, less comic booky look for Steppenwolf. Um, so here's what uh, Kieran Hines had to say. 
Um, you know, he says he revealed that he didn't have a costume when he did it. He says uh, it's all done in motion capture. So they stick a helmet on your head, they put two cameras around you, and they capture all your expressions, facial expressions. So basically, they're going to concoct some kind of construction, and they will use my facial expressions, eyes, mouth, and voice. Uh, they'll turn into this murderous, avenging Steppenwolf from the planet Apocalypse, apparently, uh, who's bent on hell on earth. Earth. So that seems to give us some idea of what his motivations are. He wants to, you know, uh, create a sort of hell on earth here. Um, but he, he did go on to say that he's still trying to get out of his enslavement to dark side. Uh, but he has to keep on this line to try and take over worlds. So that's going to be an interesting idea. Um, you know, it looks like he may, he's not really a willing sergeant to Darkseid's army. Uh, it looks like, you know, he, he's indebted or enslaved to Darkseid. And it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, because, you know, it's either he's going to turn good towards the end or it's going to add just an interesting little twist. Uh, and it's interesting that Heinz would mention that, that he is a slave, essentially, to Darkseid. And he's trying to get out of it. So I have a feeling we're going to see those two buttheads. And maybe somehow Steppenwolf will, uh, you know, start fighting on the Justice League side at some point during this battle. Because he wants to uh, betray Darkseid and get out and maybe do things his own way. So that's that's an interesting little bit over there. Um, there was also just some chatter, you know, there's, uh, you know, San Diego, San Diego Comic Con is right around the corner. So everyone's wondering, what the hell's going to go on? What is Justice League going to show, considering we know that there's a lot of work getting done right now on the film? Uh, so much work that Joss Whedon and company can't even take a break to come and participate in the Hall H festivities. Um, and just to sort of reiterate here what I said on Twitter, if there's going to be a delay, I'm not saying there will, but if there is going to be a delay... Uh, I hope to God they announce it during Comic-Con, because if all they do is get people hyped as fuck for this movie with presumably a crazy highlight reel, um, and then a week or two later, they're like, by the way, it's not coming out in November anymore. It's going to come out in early 2018. Yeah, you know, I think that's going to like throw a huge bucket of cold water on the hype created at Comic-Con. So I think if there is any chance they're delaying it, it, they would be best suited to announcing it during this. You know, really get people excited, show them the highlight reel, say, yeah, that looks amazing, right? Okay, good. So you won't mind just waiting a little bit longer because we want to make sure that this film is as amazing as possible. Yeah, I feel like that would be very strategic to like, you know, have it all happen together. Um, but we'll see what happens there. We shall see what happens there. And other news that's hot off the presses is uh, Stranger Things. Stranger Things just released a new poster for season two, and they've also set the premiere date. Originally, it was supposed to be for Halloween, October 31st, but now they moved it up a little bit, October 27th, so we're going to get it two days sooner. Um, 
And yeah, it's uh, the description is it's 1984 and the citizens of Hawkins, Indiana are still reeling from the horrors of the Demogorgon and the secrets of Hawkins Lab. Will Byers has been rescued from the upside down, but a bigger, sinister entity still threatens those who survived. And there's also a pretty epic looking new poster with our four heroes looking at a very ominous horizon. So that's pretty cool. We're going to see Stranger Things Season 2, October 27th. Cannot fucking wait for that. And the other thing that I'm looking at right now that hit the uh, that has hit the presses, uh, hit the interwebs this morning, is that the early buzz on uh, Luc Besson's next film, Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. Uh, the early buzz for that is 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 uh, now making the rounds. There have been 19 reviews uploaded to Rotten Tomatoes, and the film currently sits at a 74%, which is surprisingly fresh. Um, I say surprisingly because the people who hated it really fucking hated it. So it looks like this movie is going to be fairly divisive. Uh, just to give you an example, you know, uh, Todd McCarthy of The Hollywood Reporter, who's considered a top critic, his little blurb on it is, the Razzies don't need to wait until the end of the year to anoint a winner for 2017. The Golden Turkey Awards should be republished with a new cover. Um, so, you know, he fucking hated it. But then there's another you know reviewer here. Let's see. Uh, l- let me pick a good one. Let's see. All right. You know what? Our old friend, our old friend, Edward Douglas, uh, wrote, like the fifth element, this will grow on people with time, meant more for discerning moviegoers with strange tastes and sensibilities. So he seemed to see the the, the value in Valerian. It's going to be interesting to see what happens ultimately. You know, with, with 19 reviews in, we got 14 fresh, five rotten, and it's at 74%. I'm very fascinated for how this movie is going to turn out. Uh, it looks like a big gamble, and if it's another misfire for Dane DeHaan, I just find that very, very interesting, because he started off so promising. You know, he really came on the scene with Chronicle, but ever since, he's been attached to some fairly high-profile bombs. You know, I mean, and I shouldn't call The Amazing Spider-Man 2 a bomb. We, I know it did all right financially, but that movie is not aged well, and a lot of people think on it rather negatively. And I feel like anyone who closes their eyes for a second and pictures him as the goblin, ugh, you kind of get douche chills thinking about that. And then he was also part of that, uh, The Cure for Wellness, which got mauled by critics earlier this year. So if Valerian is another one of these, that's three movies that he's made in the last couple of years where people are going, dude, your movies suck. So... Sorry, Dane DeHaan. Hopefully that doesn't happen here. Let's see what happens with Valerian. If the reviews end up you know, trending upward, I'm going to go check it out. If they trend downward, I'm gonna. this is going to be a hard pass for me. But um, quick thing on reviews in general. Uh, Spider-Man Homecoming did something I didn't think it would do. It actually moved back up a little bit. You know, Going into its opening weekend, it was at 92, which would have tied it with Wonder Woman. But then it shot up to 94%, and now it's settled down again, one percentile down to 93%. So look at that. With 217 reviews in, uh, only 15 critics didn't like the film and wouldn't recommend it. Uh, that's very good, but you know, similar to what I was talking about with Kelvin last week, that, you know, that, that feeling of no es patanto. You know, Spider-Man Homecoming is a very good movie. 
I gave it a B plus. I'm actually probably going to go see it again, which is not something I tend to do. I've actually brought that up on this show in the past. I'm not really one to repeat a movie unless it really, really, really spoke to me. Um, but I'm, I actually plan on seeing it again because, you know, so much happened. And now that my, my expectations are more tempered, uh, it's a, it's a journey I would love to go on a second time. Um, but, but that being said, it's not one of the greatest superhero movies of all time, which is what 93% says. You know what I mean? It puts it in very exclusive company being up that high. And for me, this is not a film for the ages. So I think it's, it's a little overhyped. And if you have yet to see it, I would suggest, you know, going in a little bit lowered expectations. And on the subject of whether or not you've seen it, we are about to get into the spoiler discussion portion of things. So abandon ship now if you want to avoid spoilers. Those of you who are going to be leaving now, thanks for listening. I hope you take some time to review the El Fanboy podcast on uh, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, whatever the hell. And uh, I'll catch you guys next week. But for now, let's get into some spoilers with Mr. Dave Gonzalez. All right, so now it is my pleasure to bring on, for the first time ever one-on-one with me, the marvelous one himself, Mr. Dave Gonzalez. How you doing, Dave? Hey Mario, it's good to be in the in the singular cone of silence rather than joining a a group conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's funny. Like we, you know, uh, two times ago when you came on, it was the first time we ever like really spoke to each other. But it was with Kelvin there. Now, you know, then we had the one with like it was like four of us, and now finally this is a, this is another first. This is the first time you and I get to just have a one-on-one chat. So I'm very excited. I want to hit the ground running here with you. I know you have a, a million things going on as usual. So I want to basically pick your brain on all things Spider-Man Homecoming. Okay? Great. So uh, have you had a chance to see it more than once, or are you like me in the uh, single viewing category? No, I'm definitely in the twice viewing category, oh. and will probably probably be a third this weekend. I got to get it in right before Game of Thrones starts, because then, you know, life gets yeah. super complicated. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I've only seen it the once, but I, I can already say that for me, it's my favorite Spider-Man film of all of them. But now I have to yeah. ask you. Yeah, that, like, I, I, I want to hear your take on it, because you are much more of a Spider-Man guy than I am. Like that's, you know, that's more your world. So, you know, for someone like you, who's a hardcore Spidey holic, where does it rank for you? Uh, it's going to rank right below Spider-Man two for me. And I think that's going to be where it falls for a lot of people. The only reason it's not the best Spider-Man movie for me is sort of what you're saying. I've been a Spider-Man guy for a long time. I picked up the comics in the early nineties and did the whole, you know, clone saga for two years, you know, week to week. Uh, so I have a very, uh, I guess, traditional idea of what Marvel Comics Spider-Man is and mm-hmm. Spider-Man Homecoming, uh, Spider-Man and Peter Parker, although fantastic and built to work with inside the MCU and a great addition to that, isn't really the comic book Peter Parker in a very base way. So it's like a hashtag, not my Spider-Man, but in a way <laughs> that I actually enjoy the screen version that I got. He's young, he's fun. Uh, he fits in a world with other heroes really well, and he doesn't have to be super depressed about 
uh, Uncle Ben and its origin because they cut that out. That being said, he's a little too happy to be the Spider-Man that I recognize as being from the comic books. So his motivation sort of in this movie is to be the best Spider-Man he can be. Whereas because Uncle Ben dies and all other existence of Spider-Man, he is aware, sort of like what he says in Civil War, that when you don't do things and people get hurt, that makes it your fault. Uh, the Sony uh, Homecoming version seems to have stepped a little further away from the recognizable Spider-Man in Civil War. This one doesn't make that speech. He's just really into being Spider-Man and uh, might use it to you know, get girls, but at least thinks about that longer than you think he would if his uncle had been murdered like a year earlier. And then um, at the, I guess it's, it's at the, he's, he's not motivated by a sadness, which makes some of his interactions with characters that do get motivated by sadness a little off. Uh, mm. Like later on when he's talking to Liz Allen about how her family's changed by the end of the movie. Are we doing spoilers? Yeah, yeah. This is all okay. spoilers. <laughs> so when we, when he talks to Liz about, you know, I'm sorry, what happened to your dad that you have to move to Oregon, it comes off as like kind of like this little prick who left her at the dance and then came back to say he's really sorry about his family. It could have been like, I know what it's like to lose a family member. Yeah. This happened to me. Uh, that wasn't the time in the movie to do it. And like I was telling uh, my friend Jan Robinson from Vanity Fair, I wouldn't insert those things into Spider-Man Homecoming. Spider-Man Homecoming is a great movie as it is, but in terms of representing a Spider-Man that's recognizable to me as the comic book Spider-Man, Spider-Man 2 with its Sam Raimi, Doc Ock horror moviness and its <laughs> damseling of Mary Jane and its Spider-Man No More is definitely recognizable to me as a more complete Spider-Man movie, even if it won't be the one I rewatch the most, maybe down the line. Yeah, that's so interesting to me. I mean, I, I, that's why I'm glad to have you on because, see, I didn't like grow up on him like that, and I don't have that sort of innate personal connection with him like that. So to hear from you that this actually seems so different than the comics is uh, is interesting. I'm glad you're I'm glad you're bringing that into the mix here because I to me I felt like. This felt like uh, quintessential, but I guess I'm just seeing it as more of an outsider. Um, but I'm also glad you brought up like the quieter moments, like you know the, the the those the moment that he has there with Liz and how it sort of falls short. And that that's something that I talk about a lot with these Marvel Cinematic Universe movies. That a lot of times they seem so sort of self conscious and and they they don't want to go there. They're so like they try to avoid those heavier, more emotional moments at all costs. And I find that to be a bummer because this movie has moments of that. Like for me, there was something so sort of beautiful and poetic and sort of heartbreaking of that moment when he's on top of the roof, like looking through the little sunroof thing at all the kids in the pool. Mm -hmm. And he's kind of realizing like what he's missing out on and how the whole like, you know, with great power comes great responsibility and all that sort of stuff. Like he's about to go and he has to go be Spider-Man. But he realizes he's missing out on a normal life. And, and to me, like the way that was shot with Liz Allen sitting on the edge of the pool, like, you know, she's waiting for Peter to come sit next to her. She thinks he's going to show up. You right. know, and like this was his chance and he's blowing it. You know, he's missing out on what it is to be alive, what it, what it means to be a teenager and, and have friends and live a normal life so that he can go be Spider-Man. So like there, there are these little moments in there where you realize there's this beautiful little almost tragic you know, uh, underlining to everything, but they, they always kind of shy away from that. 
Yeah, I think it's the tragic underlining thing that it's that's what them not committing to that makes it feel different than other Mm Spider-Men because it's always been really, really sad. Like if Peter doesn't save the woman he loves, she's going to die in most situations. Yeah. And uh, this, although it's really nice to see this and we haven't seen an actual teenage uh, Peter Parker portrayed like this on screen, I feel like the metaphor of... I'm a gangly teenage boy and then one day I wake up and I'm powerful enough to actually hurt people or help people depending on my choices doesn't work as well if there is no downside besides they take away my technology suit. Like that doesn't feel Spider-Man to me. But that being said, it is Spider-Man now. So there's going to be a whole generation. I think that, you know, if you get into the comic books now, Spider-Man or owns Peter Parker, owns Parker Industries and it's sort of like a pseudo Iron Man and Miles Morales is like in the original universe and everything's screwed up because he remembers a past where Peter Parker died. So I don't know if there's a way to get into the comics that is as welcoming as Spider-Man Homecoming is to the average, you know, superhero comic book fan. Yeah. Oh, and, you know, and while we're talking about things that are sort of like a deviation and whatnot, like, did it feel like a betrayal to you? Like the idea of like, here's this, in this continuity, Peter doesn't know his own suit. Like, you know, I feel like it, it's such a part of the of the mythology that he creates the suit and it's his baby and the web shooters and he's this sort of tech whiz. And in this one, he has to learn his suit through like an AI software because it wasn't, you know, he didn't have any hand in creating it. Like, did that feel like weird for you? Um, <clears throat> I guess a little bit. It does feel weird that he has a talking suit. I mean, I understand yeah. from a filmmaking standpoint why you want to give it to him because, uh, like Spider-Man, the nineties cartoon fell into the problem where it's like Spider-Man swings around and talks about his internal monologue a lot. And yeah. that works great on the comic book page, but it doesn't work. Uh, so here we know we get suit lady, uh, Karen, uh, <laughs> Jennifer lady. Connelly. Yeah. To, to bounce off of, which I think is a great idea. But again, it's everything in this movie is Spider-Man in name only, like a rhino, like a Republican in name only. Yeah, yeah. So like Ned Leeds is that version of Ned Leeds is Genki from Ultimate Spider-Man. He's not Ned Leeds is going to become the Hobgoblin. Michelle is MJ, but they've said she's not Mary Jane Watson. She's filling what will be an MJ role. And what does that mean? That's nothing. That's a label. Yeah. Betty Brant's in this movie. She's not a romantic interest. Liz Allen's in this movie. Her last name's not actually Allen. Like everything in here is, uh, I guess there's so like the, a good example is the girl on the decathlon team, the Asian girl, her character's name is Cindy moon, which in the comics, she's silk, like another female Spider-Man mm. that was invented in 2014. But there's no way that that character is going to end up being silk. They just gave all these characters, yeah, recognizable yeah, yeah. Spider-Man names. But then certain adaptations work. I never want to see it on old, frail Aunt May again after I've seen young Aunt May. I feel like we've explored that. Spider-Man 2 does a really good scene with her in the Doc Ock chase, and we don't need to go back to that Aunt May well again. Yeah. I really like this idea of she's sort of like attractive and more of like a potential partner for Peter as uh, he gets older. Uh, but then that being said, other things like, you know, there being no Harry Osborn and, uh, I mean, they could just be saving that, you know, they could, I I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure if Calvin was here, he'd tell you that Harry Osborn is going to be in the Sony movies. So I'll do my Calvin and say that's going to (laughs) happen. But, um, they did manage to, everything that's in this movie is named after like a comic book thing, but very few, 
with the exception maybe of the Vulture and Spider-Man, actually become their comic book counterparts. So even the Shockers don't go all the way there. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the Tinkerer, he tinkers, but no one ever brings him, shows that he has like super villain level tinkering ability. Yeah, he it just seems, seems like. like a run-of-the-mill henchman who has, who's kind of tech-savvy. Yeah, exactly. Uh, they have to have Donald Glover's character reference his nephew so you could even lock down. That's the Prowler for sure. So it's like everything's close enough to be recognizable as a Spider-Man property, but it's not an adaptation of those Spider-Man characters. Yeah. Yeah. And, and by the way, just total like tangent. Uh, I was, th- there was a moment there with the shocker that for me really kind of pulled me out of it. I referenced this on last week's show. You weren't here, but I referenced that like towards the beginning of the third act, uh, when they're at the homecoming dance, there was a moment that pulled me out. And the moment was, you know, Peter runs out of the prom and Shocker's just there to have a comic book battle with him all of a sudden. And to me, that felt so like random and ham fisted, you know? Like, right. you know, it, uh, Toombs just found out that he's Spider-Man and Peter was in the dance for all of about 35 seconds. So why is the Shocker happen to be there other than, oh, we want to have Spider-Man fight the Shocker for a second and get, you know, get slammed into a school bus. Well, like the the answer lies in the geography of New York City, <laughs> because when he actually figures out that Peter Parker is Spider-Man is when the light turns green under an overpass. Still, I believe in the Brooklyn part of Queens or the Brooklyn part of uh, not a Brooklyn part of New York, not yeah. the Queens part, whereas the school would be in Queens. So I would imagine some text messaging during the driving. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, you know, of course there's ways to, for us to fill in our own little blanks, but for me, like that all just happened very quickly. And it was very like jarringly comic book. It felt very fluffy that all of a sudden, you know, like had Peter actually been at the dance for a little while, which I actually think would have been a more interesting choice for him to like dabble with the idea of maybe let, letting tombs get away with this because of the stakes and mm-hmm. then leaving, and then now it looks like Shocker was there to make sure that he you know, he didn't leave. Like, I, I think that would have been a more interesting choice, to have just Shocker just, voila, I'm here now to fight you, and I knew that you would leave out of this back door instead of the main door. Like, it just felt too, like, you know, villain twiddling the mustache, sort of like, this was too on-the-nose comic booky to me, you know? Right. Well, I mean, at that point, there's a lot of couple of things happening you're supposed to suspend disbelief, which yeah. is also, Peter's already hidden his phone in the Vulture's car at that point. He just hasn't told us, the audience, yeah. that he plans to go off of it. Which, you know, if you think about it, that means he's not actually thinking as hard as he is on the shot, so we have to suspend our disbelief a little. But I, I hear you. And that there's probably there's probably even going to be more of that sort of thing as I see the movie more and start getting to nitpick it. Yeah. But what I really like thus far about Homecoming is in comparison to the past three Spider-Man movies we've gotten in theaters, uh, I did not feel the drag of a Spider-Man movie at any time during the runtime in the actual theater for Homecoming, even though it's long. There wasn't like a middle point where I'm like, oh, here's a montage where he fixes his webbing. Here's yeah. a montage where he's dancing. Here's a montage where Dane DeHaan does stuff for some reason because <laughs> I guess we need a goblin or it's not a Spider-Man movie. So in that yeah. sense, like they really make the most of the runtime to make it a full world-building exercise. Wait, you mean to tell me you didn't want to see Dane DeHaan, who has no superpowers, taking on an entire maximum security prison? You didn't want to see that? I, I did not. I did not want to see that. <laughs> oh, I did and, not want to see a lot of Amazing Spider-Man two. In yeah, retrospect, yeah. Uh, now, before we boomerang back 
to uh, Marvel's um, like the. I, I want to ask you about a conversation that we had like two visits ago. But before we get to, that, I want to just mention again, like this idea. And I want to get your feedback on it. Like the way Marvel's so self conscious about letting anything just be epic. Another example of that for me is like when, as part of the montage where Spidey's helping people out in Queens, there's a moment there where he's standing next to the uh, American flag. Mm-hmm. And of course, that gets turned immediately into a gag as the guy, as the hot dog vendor tells him, hey, do a backflip. And he does a backflip. Like Marvel pisses me off with that stuff because it happens all the time or any moment that can make you go, oh, you know what? That's that's kind of iconic or that's ripped right from the from the books. That looks so cool. They got to go and like, you know, just turn it into something. They have to deflate it. You know, same thing like in Doctor Strange, I said a lot. We're like. Any moment where Doctor Strange could seem sort of epic and cool is capped off by like the cape slapping him in the face or something. Like, mm. that, you know, it's infuriating to me that Marvel, like, it, there's a self consciousness to the way they tell the stories where like they, they don't want to ever be accused of taking it seriously. It's like they, they want to get out in front of it and go, listen, we know that this is like hokey comic book nonsense. Please don't think for a second that we're taking it seriously. Like, does any of that stuff ever like spring out at you or is, are you just kind of used to it at this point? Um, it's less so in something like Spider-Man only because in like, so we were just talking about that shocker scene, like Adrian yeah. Toomes pulls out a gun, threatened Peter Parker's life. He has to give up Liz. He runs out back. His web shooters get like knocked off of him as he gets punched. And that's probably like at the darkest point in the movie is. And then what immediately happens, he gets punched into a bus underneath the bus seat and he looks up at all the gum and he goes, ew. And I'm like, oh, this movie's not going to give me those stakes. Yeah. Like this movie's not going to be that serious. It works for Spider-Man. It is weirder when it's stuff like Doctor Strange. uh, Or and then it's going to be weird if they... I mean, Robert Downey Jr. just pulls it off through strength of personality in the Avengers <laughs> yeah. movies. But uh, it's going to be weird if the Infinity War movies uh, try to have like levity, but then on the other hand, be like, but the universe is at stake. So yeah. it's going to be a harder balance as the world gets bigger. It didn't yeah. bother me as much for Spider-Man Homecoming because it's okay. like the Vulture just wanted his job back. And that's like the stakes of the movie. <laughs> yeah. uh, every, everyone just wants to keep the job that they have at the beginning of the movie, whether it be <laughs> Spider-Man or Vulture. Everyone just wants That's to keep it. their job. The, the real name of the movie is like Spider-Man, keep your job. Yeah. yeah. Spider-Man, really d- don't let them take your jobs. Yeah. Uh, but that, that's because those stakes are that small. I feel like it is good. What worries me is that uh, this Spider-Man has to lead into Infinity War Spider-Man because that's the next thing. And the yeah. worlds are so vastly different. All right, now, I know you need to leave in like two minutes. So I, I, I got to ask now. You know, yeah. we, had, we had a lot of discussion about the amount of Marvel in this movie. Remember in the trailers, like yes. there was so much Iron Man, there was a lot of debate about is there too much and are they playing the Marvel card too heavily? So now that you've seen it twice, how do you feel about the way the Marvel card was played? Uh, I feel a lot better. Um, first of all, that the two there are two shots in the trailer that aren't in the movie, uh, Vulture, landing in the hotel atrium that was built just to do a test of what the vulture would look like and showed a San Diego comic-con. They liked it so much. They kept it in the trailer. <laughs> the second was the shot of spider man and iron man flying together. Like they're going to team up. Yeah. Yeah. Totally not in the movie. Uh, this movie was edited in a way or the movie's trailers were edited in a way to lean on the MCU to bring in those dollars. And now that it's Sony's second biggest opening ever, with I think 117 yeah. million over the opening weekend, it obviously paid off. Uh, having seen the movie, I'm much more concerned that uh, 
with the exception of characters that have already appeared in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, every other character that shows up is Sony's character. So I don't want to get too involved with uh, your, you know, your Michelle J's or anything (laughs) like that, because it's going to be two more movies till I see them again. And who knows how I'm going to feel about the whole universe. So it was a nice stop to check in on Spider-Man. But I think Sony really managed to pull step one of a five-step really complex highway robbery if they could pull it off. Yeah. And now before I let you go, I want to just uh, bounce off you, bounce this off you as well. Just an idea I had. We're just in terms of, I feel like without Tony Stark in this movie, they would have had to do an origin story. You know what I mean? Like in terms of his, how beneficial he was to this film and to the script, I feel like he was sort of, for better or worse, the stand-in for Uncle Ben. You know, he was the father figure who kind of lectures Peter, who Peter kind of has to like try to live up to or impress or, you know, has to contend with that helps him on his way towards becoming the man he's supposed to be. I feel like without Tony Stark in this movie and what Robert Downey Jr. just intrinsically brings to the role, they might have felt like, you know, we have to do the whole origin thing. We have to go back to the Uncle Ben well again. What do you think of that? Yeah, probably right. Uh, you need that that figure that gives Spider-Man balance early on because he's a teenager and he's young and this is all a metaphor for puberty at some point. Um so you need like that father figure that's willing to to give him direction. Yeah. Uh Tony Stark works really well and I've always wanted it to be either Tony Stark or Bruce Banner uh because of the science bros connection. Like finally we have a scientifically minded Peter Parker. Why wouldn't he look up Tony Stark and Bruce Banner and all those people? Yeah. So it really works for me. Um, and I'm sure it really works for Robert Downey Jr. Uh, be like, you know, tying himself into as many franchises as possible as this one character. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be all the more difficult to see what happens post infinity war and see if, uh, Iron Man's part of the mix or not. Would you like Bruce Banner to be the next MCU person that shows up in a Spider-Man movie that he has to team up with? Cause there were those reports like two weeks ago that for the sequel, there'll be another MCU proper person that Peter deals with. Yeah. I'd love Banner and, uh, Black Widow to be those two people. Um, and I think, at least at this point, if we're going off of just who's more marketing famous, like until uh, Captain America Civil War or Captain America the First Avenger and Thor came out, like Wolverine, Spider-Man, Hulk, yeah. those were the Marvel characters. So now we just need to get to that Spider-Man Hulk team up that I've been waiting for since I was born. And I could I could sleep easy. And wouldn't that technically involve three different studios? Because I think Universal is still in the mix as owning the Hulk film rights, and they only let Marvel Studios use him for team up movies. So right. it's like well, Spider Man would, in theory, be a team up movie and might not need the go ahead of Universal. But we'll we'll see. That's going to be a business discussion that I'm sure somebody's having right now. Yeah. But all right, man, I know you got things to do. Thank you so much for coming on and joining me for this Spider-Man Homecoming spoiler discussion. Yeah, thanks a lot, man. You got it, dude. And uh, Have fun with your meeting, and we'll talk again soon. Oh, and I'm sure it'll be great. Teen Mom 2 <laughs> premieres this, this Monday. Teen Mom 2 this Monday, everyone. <laughs> and uh, Dave's on Storm of Spoilers and Fighting in the War Room. Those are his other podcasts. Check him out. Thanks so much, guys. <laughs> Now, there was a moment there um, in Spider-Man Homecoming that I wanted to speak about on my own. And it's a moment that 
I don't know if the reason it spoke to me is, is universal. I don't know if you guys will be able to relate to this, but it hit me right where I live. Um, it's the moment where Peter gets buried under a whole bunch of debris and uh, Vulture leaves him there basically, I don't know, either to die or at least leave him trapped there to go do what he has to do. And uh, Peter tries to summon as much strength as he can to push up out of it. And he can't. And Tom Holland pulls off some beautiful acting here where you could hear the despair and the desperation in his voice. And it just killed me. Um, you could feel the world caving in on Peter's shoulders and the fear in his voice of realizing, maybe I can't do this. Maybe I'm not strong enough to pull myself out of this moment. Um, and to me, it just hit me very profoundly because, you know, there, there are those times in life where situations get you into such a dark hole and you wonder Will I be able to get out of this? Am I strong enough to get out of this? And in that moment where he's saying, come on, Spider-Man, come on. And he's speaking to himself. He's trying to give himself a pep talk. It's like, I've been there. I don't know about you guys, but I've been there where I come face to face with a situation that I don't know if I have the tools or the powers or the ability to get myself out of. And so that's the moment that brought me back into the movie in a major way. I referenced this last week, you know, that after the shocker uh, sequence outside of the prom, outside of the homecoming dance, and I felt like, oh, this is some hokey, cartoony stuff. Oh, well. The moment where Peter is trapped and he's trying to summon the internal strength to get himself out of this situation... And the life-altering moment that that is, if you think about it, that perfectly sets the stage for when he decides to not be an Avenger, where he turns down that offer because he realizes as much as he wanted it, he's not ready for that. And in life, sometimes, you know, you get the thing you want, but it's not really what you would expect it. And it, it doesn't pan out the way you thought it would be. It doesn't feel... Life doesn't always feel the way you thought it would feel to get to a certain point. And, um, yeah, I don't know if, if that moment speaks to as many people as it does to me, but that moment grabbed me by the throat. It spoke, like, right to me. And that's why I actually want to go see it again. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not huge on repeating movies, but Spider-Man Homecoming, even if just for that moment... I want to see it again, especially knowing now, you know, having my expectations in check and knowing what kind of a ride it is, I want to go see it again. So um, if, if that scene doesn't speak to you, you got to check your pulse. You got to see you, you got to go see a cardiologist because there's just something so profoundly moving about seeing our hero, this young man who we have so much faith in, suddenly realizing I might not be able to do this. I'm in over my head. Um, just, you know, it, the movie could have done with so much more of that sort of stuff. You know, if Marvel had had the balls to make a film that was more emotional, the ingredients were there. 
but they just decided to not really go there. That and and the moment I, I mentioned with Dave, you know, when he's looking at his friends in the pool and realizing, like, I'm missing out on this. You know, that sort of, like, there's just, there really is a lot of heft to the Peter Parker mythology. And I wish there had been more of that played in Spider-Man Homecoming. You know, that would have instantly elevated it to an A or A-plus film for me. Instead, they shied away from it and they went more for jokes and they kept it light and jovial. And as such, you know, it succeeded as a light and jovial uh, Spider-Man romp. But it really could have been so much more. And then those, those two moments right there show what it could have been. Uh, and the final, you know, spoiler bit is, you know, I'm still... So, Mac Gargan, played by Michael Mando in the uh, mid credit sequence has a moment there where he confronts Vulture. Uh, he confronts Michael, Ke- you know, Michael Keaton's tombs in prison. And we find out that Michael Keaton's tombs has basically kind of pulled an about face and, and he's not going to hand Peter Parker over to him and he, and he denies knowing Spider-Man's real identity. Um, but what's interesting about that is Mac Gargan, as discussed with Kelvin last week, is featured prominently as Scorpion in the Silver and Black movie. So it's interesting that it looks like they're hyping up an enhanced role for Mac Gargan, a.k.a. Scorpion, played by Michael Mando, in an MCU movie, but by all accounts, Silver and Black will not be an MCU set movie. This is where things are going to start getting really bizarre when it comes to this Spider-Man deal between Sony and Marvel Studios. Um, so when you guys watch that, just, I, I want you to understand what's going on. You know, the, 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 uh, corporate underlayers of that moment, you know, that is Sony using an MCU movie to basically plant the seeds for a movie that's going to be set separate from it. Uh, it's, I, I have no idea how that stuff is going to go, but, um, All right, guys, uh, that just about wraps it up for the spoiler discussion on Spider-Man, and it wraps it up for this week's edition of the El Fanboy podcast. Uh, Thank you guys for taking the time to to listen and write your reviews and retweet and share with your friends about this show. Uh, It really is a ride that I'm enjoying a great deal, Um, and I will be back next week. Thank you, and uh, until then, adios. (laughs) 